0: CHAPTER ELEVEN, PART ONE OF WHAT CATHY DID NEXT This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mario Pineda What Katy DID NEXT by Susan Coolidge CHAPTER ELEVEN, PART ONE NEXT LUTE Worthington's sleep had nearly expired. He must rejoin his ship, but he waited till the last possible moment in order to help his sister through the move to Albano, where it had been decided that Amy should go for a few days of hill air before undertaking the longer journey to Florence. It was a perfect morning in late March when the pale little invalid was carried in her uncle's strong arms and placed in the carriage which was to take them to the old town on the mountain slopes which they had seen shining from far away for so many weeks past. A spring had come in her favorite shape to Italy. The Campagna had lost its brown and tawny hues and taken on a tinge of fresher color. The olive orchards were budding thickly. Almond boughs extended their dazzling shapes across the blue sky. Arums and acanthus and ivy filled every hollow, roses nodded from over every gate, while a carpet of violets and cyclamen and primroses stretched over the fields and frighted every wandering wind with fragrance. When once the companion with its long line of aqueducts, arches, and hoary thumbs was left behind, and the carriage slowly began to mount the gradual rises of the hill, Amy revived. With every breath of the fresher air, her eyes seemed to brighten, and her voice to grow stronger. She held Mabel up to look at the view, and the sound of her love, faint and feeble as it was, was like music to her mother's ears amy wore a droll little silk-lined cap on her head over which a downy growth of pale brown fuss was gradually thickening already it showed a tendency to form into tiny rings which to amy who had always hankered for curls was an extreme satisfaction As strange to say the same thing exactly had happened to mabel her hair had grown out into soft little round curls also uncle ned and katy had ransacked Rumford for this baby wig which filled and realized all amy's hopes for her child on the same excursion, they had bought the materials for the pretty spring suit which Mabel wore, for it had been deemed necessary to sacrifice most of her wardrobe as a concession to possible fever jars. Amy admired the pearl-colored dress and hat, the French jacket, and little lace-trimmed parasol so much that she was quite consoled for the loss of the blue velvet costume and ermine muff, which had been the pride of her heart ever since they left Paris and whose destruction they had scarcely dared to confess to her. So up, 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 they climbed till the gateway of the old town was passed, and the carriage stopped before a quaint building once the residence of the Bishop of Albano, but now known as the Hotel de la Poste. Here they alighted and were shown up a wide and lofty staircase to the rooms, which were on the sunny side of the house, and looked across a walled garden where roses and lemon trees grew beside the old fountains, guarded by sculpture lions and heathen divinities with broken noses and a scant supply of fingers and toes, to the Campagna purple with the distance and stretching miles and miles away to where Rome sat on her seven hills, lifting high the dome of St. Peter's into the illuminated air nurse swift said that amy must go to bed at once and have a long rest but amy nearly wept at the proposal and declared that she was not a bit tired and couldn't sleep if she went to bed ever so much the change of air had done her good already and she looked more like herself than for many weeks past. they compromised their dispute on the sofa where amy well wrapped up was late and where in spite of her protestations she presently fell asleep leaving the others free to examine and arrange their new quarters such enormous rooms as there were it was quite a journey to go from one side of them to another. The floors were of stone, with squares of carpet laid down over them, which looked absurdly small for the great spaces that were supposed to cover. The beds and tables were of the usual size, but they seemed almost like dull furniture because the chambers were so big—a quaint old paper, with an enormous pattern of banyan trees and pagodas, covered the walls, and every now and then betrayed by an oblong of regular cracks the existence of a hidden door—papered to look exactly like the rest of the wall. These mysterious doors made Katy nervous, and she never rested till she had opened every one of them and explored the places they led to. One gave access to a queer little bathroom, another led, through an hour of dark passage, to a sort of balcony or loggia overhanging the garden. A third ended in the dusty closet with an artful chink in it from which you could peep into what had been the Bishop's drawing room, but which was now turned into the dining room of the hotel. It seemed made for the purposes of a spile, and Katy had visions of a long line of reverend prelates with their ears glued to the chink overhearing what was being said about them in the apartment beyond the most surprising of all she did not discover till she was going to bed on the second night after their arrival when she thought she knew all about the mysterious doors and what they led to a little unexplained draught of wind made her candle flicker and betrayed the existence of a still another door so cunningly hidden the wall pattern that she had failed to notice it she had quite a creepy feeling as she drew her dressing-gown about her, took a light, and entered a narrow passage into which it opened. It was not a long passage, and ended presently in a tired oratory. There was a little marble altar, with a kneeling step and candlesticks, and a great crucifix above. And so wax candles still remained in the candlesticks, and bunches of dusty paper flowers filled the bases which stood on either side of them. A faded silk cushion lay on the step. Doubtless, the bishop had often knelt there. Catty felt as if she were the first person to enter the place since she went away. Her common sense told her that in a hotel bedroom, constantly occupied by strangers for years past, someone must have discovered the door and found a little oratory before her. But common sense is sometimes less satisfactory than romance. Catty liked to think that she was the first, and to make believe that no one else knew about it. So she did so and invented legends about the place which Amy considered better than any fairy story. Before he left them, Lieutenant Warrington had a talk with his sister in the garden. She rather forced this talk upon him, for various things were lying on her heart, about which she longed for explanation, but he yielded so easily to her wiles that it was evident he was not averse to the idea. "'Come, Polly, don't beat about the bush any longer,' he said at last, amused and a little irritated at her half-hints and little feminine fineness." I know what you want to ask, and, as there is no use making a secret of it, I will take my turn in asking. Have I had a chance, do you think?" Any chance? About Katy? do you mean? Oh, Ned, you make me so happy. Yes, about her, of course. I don't see why you should say, of course," remarked his sister, with the perversity of her sex, when it's only five or six weeks ago that I was lying awake at night for fear you were being gobbled up by that little page. There was little risk of it," replied her brother, seriously she's awfully pretty and she dances beautifully and the other fellows were all wild about her and well you know yourself how such things go i can't see now what it was that i fancied so much about her i don't suppose i could have told exactly at the time but i can tell without the smallest trouble what it is in the order in Katy? i should think so cried mrs ashe emphatically the two are no more to be compared than that mm, well bread and syllabub. you can live on one and you can't live on the other Come now, Miss Page, she isn't so bad as that. She is a nice girl enough, and a pretty girl too, prettier than Caddy. I'm not so far gone that I can't see that, but we won't talk about her. She's not in the present question at all. Very likely she'd have had nothing to say to me in any case. I was only one out of the dozen, and she never gave me a reason to suppose that she cared more for me than the rest. Let us talk about this friend of yours. Have I any chance at all, do you think, Polly? Ned, you are the dearest boy. I would rather have Catty for a sister than anyone else I know. She is so nice all true, so true and sweet and satisfactory. She is all that and more. She is a woman to tie to for life, to be perfectly sure of always. She would make a splendid wife for any man. I am not half good enough for her. But the question is, and you haven't answered it yet, Polly, what's my chance? I don't know, said his sister slowly. Then I must ask herself, and I shall do so to-day. "'I don't know,' repeated Mrs. Ash. "'She is a woman, therefore to be one, and I don't think there is anyone ahead of you. That is the best hope I have to offer, Ned. Kathy never talks of such things, and though she is so frank, I can't guess whether or not she ever thinks about him. She likes you, however, I am sure of that, but, Ned, it will not be wise to say anything to her yet.' "'Not say anything?' "'Why not?' "'No. Recollect that it is only a little while since she looked upon you as the admirer of another girl, and a girl she doesn't like very much.' though they are cousins. You must give her time to get over that impression. Wait a while. That's my advice, Ned. I'll wait any time if only she will say yes in the end. But it's hard to go away without a word of hope, and it's more like a man to speak out, it seems to me. It's too soon, persisted his sister. You don't want her to think you a fickle fellow, falling in love with a fresh girl every time you go into port and falling out again with the ship's sails. Sailors have a bad reputation for that sort of thing. No woman cares to win a man like that. Great Scott! I should think not! do you mean to say that it is the way my conduct appears to her polly no i don't mean just that but wait dear ned i am sure it is better Forty-five by this sage counsel, lieutenant worthington went away next morning without saying anything to Caddy and words though perhaps eyes and tones might have been less discreet he made them promise that someone should send a letter every day about Amy, and as Mrs. Ash frequently devolved the writing of these bulletins upon Caddy, and the replies came in the shape of long letters, she found herself conducting a pretty regular correspondence without quite intending it. Ned Worthington wrote particularly nice letters. He had the knack, more often found in women than men, of giving a picture of with a few graphic touches, and indicating what was droll or what was characteristic with a single happy phrase. His letters grew to be one of Caddy's pleasures, and sometimes, as Mrs. Ash watched the color deepening her cheeks while she read, her heart would bound hopefully within her. But she was a wise woman in her way, and she wanted Caddy for her sister very much, so she never said a word or looked a look to startle or surprise her, but left the thing to work itself out, which is the best curse always in love affairs. Little Amy's improvement at Albano was something remarkable. Mr. Swift watched over her like a lynx. Her vigilance never relaxed. Amy was made to eat and sleep and walk and rest with the regularity of a machine. And this exact system, combined with the good air, worked like a charm. The little one gained hour by hour. They could absolutely see her growing fat, her mother declared. Fevers, when they do not kill, operate sometimes as spring bonfires do in gardens, burning up all the refuse and leaving the soil free for the growth of fairer things. And Amy promised in time to be only the better and stronger for her hard experience. She had gained so much before the time came to start for Florence, that they scarcely dreaded the journey, but it proved worse than their expectations. They had not been able to secure a carriage to themselves, and were obliged to share the compartment with two English ladies and three Roman Catholic priests, one old, the others young. The older priest seemed to be a person of some consequence, for quite a number of people came to see him off, and knelt for his blessing devoutly as the train moved away the younger ones cady guessed to be seminary students under his charge the chief amusement through the long dusty journey was in watching the terrible time that one of these young men was having with his own hat. it was a large three-cornered black affair with sharp angles and excessively stiff and a perpetual struggle seemed to be going on between it and its owner who was evidently unhappy when it was on his head and still more unhappy when it was anywhere else if he perched on his knees it was sure to slide away from him and fall with a thump on the floor whereupon he would pick it up blushing furiously as he did so then he would lay it on the seat when the train stopped at the station and jumped out with an air of relief but he invariably forgot and sat down upon it when he returned and sprang up with a look of horror at the loud crackle it made after which he would tug it into the baggage-rack overhead from which it would presently descend generally into the lap of one of the staid english ladies who would hand it back to him with an air of deep offence remarking to her companion i never knew anything like it fancy that makes four times that the hat has fallen on me the young man is a fidget he is the most fidgety creature i have ever saw in my life the young seminariat did not understand a word she said but the tone needed no interpreter and set him to blushing more painfully than ever altogether the hat was never off his mind for a moment cathy could see that he was thinking about it even when he was thumbing his breviary and making believe to read at last the train, steaming down the valley of the Arno, revealed fair Florence sitting among olive-clad hills, with Joro's beautiful bell tower, and the great many-colored, soft-hued cathedral, and the square tower of the old palace, and the quaint bridges over the river, looking exactly as they do in the photographs. And Caddy would have felt delighted, in spite of dust and fatigue, had not Amy looked so worn out and exhausted. They were seriously troubled about her, and for a moment could think of nothing else happily the fatigue did no permanent harm and a day or two of rest made her all right again by good fortune a nice little apartment in the modern quarter of the city had been vacated by its winter occupants the very day of their arrival and mrs ashe secured it for a month with all its conveniences and advantages including a maid named maria who had been servant to the just departed tenants Maria was a very tall woman, at least six feet two, and had a splendid control to voice, which she occasionally exercised while busy over her pots and pans. It was so remarkable to hear these grand arias and recitatives proceeding from a kitchen some eight feet square that Cathy was at great pains to satisfy her curiosity about it. By aid of the dictionary and much persistent questioning she made out that Maria in her youth had received a partial training for the opera. But in the end it was decided that she was too big and heavy for a stage, and the poor giantess, as Amy named her, had been forced to abandon her career, and gradually had sunk to the position of a maid of all work. Cathy suspected that the heaviness of mind, as well as of body, must have stood in her way, for Maria, though a good-natured giantess, was by no means quick of intelligence i do think that the manner in which people over here can make homes for themselves at five minutes notice it's perfectly delightful cried katy at the end of the first day's housekeeping i wish we could do the same in america how cosy it looks here already it was indeed cosy the new domain consisted of a parlour and a corner furnished in bright yellow brocade with windows to south and west a nice little dining-room three bedrooms with dimity curtain beds a square entrance hall lighted at night by a tall slender brass lamp whose double wicks were fed with olive oil and the aforesaid tiny kitchen behind which was a sleeping cubby quite too small to be a good fit for the giantess the rooms were full of conveniences easy chairs sofas plenty of bureaus and dressing tables, and corner fireplaces like Franklin's tubs, in which odd little fires burn in cool days, made of pine cones, cakes of pressed sodas exactly like Boston brown bread cut into slices, and a few sticks of wood thriftily adjusted for a few leaves worth its wedding gold in Florence. Catty's was the smallest of the bedrooms, but she liked it best of all for the reason that its one big window opened on an iron balcony over which grew a banksia rose vine with a stem as thick as her wrist. It was covered just now with masses of tiny white blossoms, whose fragrance was inexpressibly delicious and made every breath drawn in the neighborhood of a delight. The sun streamed in on all sides of the little apartment, which filled a narrowly angle at the union of three streets, and from one window and another glimpses could be caught of the distant heights about the city. San Miniato in one direction, Velosguardo in another, and for the third the long olive-hung ascent of Fisol, crowned by its gray cathedral towers. It was astonishing how easily everything fell into train about the little establishment. Every morning at six, the English baker left two small sweet brown loaves and a dozen rolls at the door, then followed the dairyman with a supply of tiny leaf-shaped past of freshly churned butter, a big flask of milk, and two small bottles of thick cream, with a twist of vine leaf in each by way of a cork. Next came a contadino, with a flask of red, chianti wine, a film of oil floating on top to keep it sweet. People in Florence must drink wine, whether they like it or not, because the lime-impregnated water is unsafe for use without some admixture. Dinner came from a trattoria, in a tin box, with a pan of coals inside to keep it warm, which box was carried on a man's head. It was furnished at a fixed price per day, a soup, two dishes of meat, two vegetables, and a sweet dish, and the supply was so generous as always to leave something toward the next day's luncheon. Salad, fruit, and fresh eggs Maria bought for them in the old market. From the confectioners came loaves of pane santo, a sort of light cake made with arrowroot instead of flour, and sometimes, by way of treat, a square of panforte da siena, compounded of honey, almonds, and chocolate, a mixture as pernicious as it is delicious, and which might take a medal anywhere for the sure production of nightmares. Amy soon learned to know the shops from which these delicacies came. She had her favorites, too, among the strolling merchants who sold oranges and those little sweet native figs dried in the sun without sugar, which are among the specialties of Florence. They, in their turn, learned to know her, and to watch for the appearance of her little capped head and Mabel's blonde wig at the window, lingering about till she came, and advertising their wares with musical modulations so appealing that Amy was always running to Caddy, who acted as housekeeper, to beg her to please buy this or that, because it is my old man, and he wants me too, so much. But, Chicken, we have plenty of figs for to-day. No matter. Get some more. Please do. I'll eat them all. Really, I will and amy was as good as her word her convalescent appetite was something prodigious there was another branch of shopping in which they all took equal delight the beauty and the cheapness of the Florence flowers are a continual surprise to a stranger every morning after breakfast an old man came creaking up the two long flights of stairs which led to Mrs. ashe's apartment tapped at the door and as soon as it opened inserted a shabby elbow and a large flat basket full of flowers such flowers Great masses of scarlet and cream-colored tulips, and white and gold narcissus, notes and roses of all shades, carnations, heavy-headed trails of wistaria, wild hyacinths, violets, deep crimson and orange ranunculus, gigius, or wild rhizos, the Florence emblem so deeply purple as to be almost black, anemones, spring beauties, faintly tinted wood blooms, tied in large loose nosegays, ivy, fruit blossoms, everything that can be thought of that is fair and sweet. These enticing words, the old man would tip out on the table. Mrs. Ash and Cattie would select what they wanted, and then the process of bargaining would begin, without which no sales complete in Italy. The old man would name an enormous price, five times as much as he hoped to get. Cattie would offer a very small one, considerably less than she expected to give. The old man would dance with dismay, wring his hands, assure them that he should die of hunger and all his family with him if he took less than the price named. He would then come down half a franc in his demand. So it would go on for five minutes, ten, sometimes for a quarter of an hour, the old man's price gradually descending, and Katy's terms very slowly going up, a cent or two at a time. Next, the giantess would mingle with the fray. She would bounce out of her kitchen, berate the flower-bender, snatch up his flowers, declare that they smelt badly, fling them down again, pouring out all the white and voluble tirade of reproaches and revilings, and looking so enormous in her excitement that Katy wondered that the old man dared to answer her at all. Finally there would be a sudden lull. The old man would shrug his shoulders and, remarking that he and his wife and his aged grandmother must go without bread that day since it was the Signora's will, take the money offered and depart, leaving such a mass of flowers behind him that Cathy would begin to think that they had paid an unfair price for them and to feel a little rueful, till she observed that the old man was absolutely dancing downstairs with rapture over the good bargain he had made, and that Maria was black with indignation over the extravagance of her ladies. The Americani and a nation of spendthrifts. she would mutter to herself, as she quickened the charcoal in her droll little range by fanning it with a palm-leaf fan. They squander money like water. Well, all the better for us Italians, with a shrug of the shoulders. But, Maria, it was only sixteen cents that we paid, and look at those flowers. They are at least half a bushel of them. Sixteen cents for garbage like that. The signorina would better let me make her bargains for her gia gia no italian lady would have paid more than eleven sous for such useless roba it is evident that the signorina's countrymen eat gold when at home they think so little of casting it away altogether what with the comfort and quiet of this little home the numberless delightful things that there were to do and to see and this great library from which they could draw brooks at will to make the doing and seeing more intelligible the month at florence passed only too quickly and was one of the times to which they afterward looked back with most pleasure amy grew steadily stronger and the freedom from anxiety about her after their long strain of apprehension was restful and healing beyond expression to both mind and body End of chapter 11, part 1 of What Katy Did Next.